Welcome to Accidental Hope Podcast, a community that seeks hope and healing from a faith perspective. My name is Jennifer, and I'm not an expert, but I do share life experiences because I believe it will help someone else. So get ready to open your heart, laugh, cry, and receive. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. We have a guest, a second-time guest, which I'm excited about. Welcome back, David Peters. He is vicar in Austin, or right outside of Austin in Pflugerville. He is a father and husband and author and podcaster. He wrote a book called The Post-Traumatic God. I'll leave a link for that in the show notes. But David, thanks so much for coming back today and telling us about moral injury. Thanks for having me back, and it's good to be back. There's really no other subject right now that that I uh, that I am so passionate about. Um, the subject of moral injury for people that have been involved in accidental deaths and injuries—it's something that's dear to my heart because it was my experience. I'm one of the people that is killed accidentally in a car accident when I was 19 driving to church on a Sunday night with my buddy in the passenger seat and hit a median strip uh, in the middle of the road or in the side of the road. And I went into oncoming traffic and hit a motorcycle and a woman died from that. And the man that was riding it was severely injured. Of course, you know, I went back to my dormitory after going to the hospital and getting my knee checked out because I'd cracked my kneecap and my Thankfully, my friend was okay. His clothes were ripped, and that was about it. Um, but I emerged from that, uh, waking up to the next morning in my dorm with a dean of men coming in, um, or maybe it was a dean of students. It was dean of students um, came in, and this is a Bible college, so you know, talking about the Bible wasn't that weird <laughs> for the, the dean of students to do. Um, he came in, sat down, and he opened his Bible and read uh, a passage from the Old Testament about the cities of refuge, which um, there's a, the cities of refuge are six cities uh, that are noted to be cities of refuge when the uh, people of God go into the land of Canaan to sort of take it back after Egypt, the escape from Egypt and Moses dies and Joshua takes them into the land of Canaan to possess the land and live there and spread out in the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes all have their different areas that they live in, but um, there's six cities appointed and they're all like sort of spread out evenly so that you could get to one in a day's journey. Uh, City of Refuge is uh, for people that have killed accidentally or had an accident that caused someone's death. Um, The illustration given there is if two men are out in the field uh, cutting wood with, you know, a stone age ax, or Iron Age axe, maybe made of stone, maybe made of metal, um, and the head flies off and hits one of them, and he dies, and he carries his body back into town, there's really no way that he could prove that he didn't murder him intentionally. Um, And so this man has to flee to the city of refuge. Once he gets to the city of refuge, the man who died, his family can't come and take vengeance on him, which this is before um, really a formal um, court and judicial and uh, uh, penitentiary system was developed in the world. So families took vengeance for themselves, or you could, they did have trials for sure. Um, and there would be a trial then to see like, 
if it had been intentional, the death could be proven to be intentional, which means you had to have two witnesses uh, that said, oh yeah, he said he was going to kill him uh, the day before or something. But in these ambiguous um, accidental deaths, this, the, the accidental killer would have to live in the city of refuge uh, for the rest of their life or until the high priest died. If the high priest dies uh, during that time, everyone in the city of refuge is allowed to go home with no penalty of uh, vengeance being taken upon them. And he read this to me in my dorm room and I was just looked at him like strangely, like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, what does this like, mean? <laughs> like, I didn't even know what had happened to me. Like, you know, I knew I'd been in a car accident. I knew somebody had died, um, but I didn't understand what had happened to me. Um, I was 19. I'd just gotten out of Marine Corps. You were still camp. in shock. Totally. You were still totally. in psychological shock. Your brain and your heart were trying to figure out and get caught up like, was that real? Did that, wait, is this permanent? It, it's that sudden shock, I think. I mean. Oh, I was just numb. More numb. I mean, I was already numb from being in Marine Corps boot camp for a whole summer. Um, like I was numb to my feelings and all sorts of other ways to cope with that experience. But, that, but the shock of what it, I'd seen and felt and experienced was just like, my mind was like a blank wall. Uh, yeah, if I looked at a blank wall, I'd see, I'd feel like my car going out of control where I couldn't control it. I had these like sudden bodily sensations of like remembering stuff, which is a symptom of PTSD. I didn't know what that was then. And um, one of the weirdest things that happened the next day uh, or that week, I'm not sure if it was what day it was, was we had student elections. This was right in the beginning of the semester. I'd been there for like five days or a week. Um, and we all, the new freshmen were all there like at once. And we had student elections for like student council. And I was elected as the student life representative, I think with some kind of activities person. I, did, I didn't nominate myself, like they nominated me and I just like, and I'm on crutches because, but the reason I won the election was because everybody knew who I was because of the accident. Like, oh, wow. Everybody like was like, oh, he was in that accident. So this was a thing. Him. Oh, wow. Which was, I knew that that's why they were electing me because um, they didn't know and the other people <laughs> were up for it. And it was like a, a very small like office of student government. But I, and I should have said no to it because I didn't understand. I didn't understand how this had affected me at all. I was just going to keep going and hope my leg would heal and, you know, move on with life. Didn't know about the two and a half million dollar lawsuit yet coming my way. So I just kind of like stood for election and, and that's why. So I think about that, how weird that was, surreal. You know, people use all kinds of words to describe how they feel. And um, now that I'm removed by like 26 years from that moment, um, I've had a renewed interest in those cities of refuge. Uh, working on a book. It's the manuscript's finished because of COVID. The publisher delayed it a year because uh, they want to kind of market it. And it was supposed to come out this fall. Uh, they want to market it with a little more where COVID isn't <laughs> the number one news story, which hopefully will be the case in a year in Texas and around the country and the world. But um, in that book, I, I explore the ideas of the city of refuge that there really is no place to go when someone has an accidental death like this when unintentional uh killing i think that's a 
term I've kind of taken up with Marion Gray, a little bit unintentional killer, um, gets a little closer to the, the truth than maybe accidental killer, because um, that's really the difference between uh, what we consider a crime, what we consider an accident is the intention. And, right. And, um, and, and I call it unintentional perpetrator. I recently, too, started looking at the Old Testament and what the scriptures said and, and thinking about a place. I kind of feel like the work of Accidental Impacts and meeting you, I'm meeting the other caddies. Caddies, like he just said, is causing accidental death or injury. Um, it feels a little better, nicer than accidental killer or unintentional killer, but it gives you that sense of community. So I guess when you flee there, you would get there and you would know immediately they can grieve with you. The guilt. Yes, they can. And, and, and you know, we just had a virtual uh, support group meeting and we could look at the faces of people from all around the world and suddenly we're all just overcome with emotion it was our city of refuge. And that's one of the things Marion Gray wrote about um, in her, um, an article she wrote about uh, her accident when she was a young woman uh, that killed a child. Um, she wrote about how the city of refuge concept, and that's very much a key concept in Judaism, the city's a refuge. So she, she took that and said like that community that people just like lose when these kinds of things happen. Who can you talk to? And you can imagine that guy dragging himself into that city of refuge after running for 15 miles or 20 miles worried that this these family members are going to come kill him he gets there and these were priestly cities levitical cities the levites didn't get a territory they but they got cities all over um, the land so they could be present in a lot of different places so that idea of the priestly cities um, they were places of sacrifice too, where, where sacrifices were offered, like in the temple, but also son is here. Um, they were places of sacrifice and of um, ministry, of caring for people as the Levitical priesthood. You know, we're certainly concerned with the ceremonial parts of worship, but also carrying on the legacy of their faith and reading scripture and, and singing the Psalms together. And so like, it was a place of like, in the ancient world, I mean, this is like the Iron Age, historically, like, this, this was not a time where people were like touchy-feely, and, you know, they like, you basically take a time travel there, you would, we'd all look around and be like, whoa, we are in, <laughs> this is a time when every single male, like, served in the military, like, when they went to war, like, every single person fought, basically, so it was a very traumatized society in many ways, and yet, out of, in this middle of this uh, culture, there's these places of refuge. And so in my book, I try to help people construct their own city of refuge. Like you've got it from day one after the accident or whenever you can sort of muster up, there's a number of things you can do um, to build that city of refuge, to bring some healing to yourself and to, to others. It's not like it happens all at once. You can't build a city. It takes a while because Honestly, for most of us, there was no city of refuge. I know for me, um, I once no. asked a girlfriend, I told a girlfriend about it, and I, I was in my 30s, so it was like 15 years before. So, you know, I told her about it, what had happened. She looked at me and said, that's terrible. Like, like you shouldn't tell anybody that. Like, she looked at me with this judgment, like, what I had done. And it was too big. Thinks I've done something awful, whereas I've kind of always seen it as like an accident that happened to me. 
like, you know, I, I didn't like set out to do this. Have you had a chance to read the tragedy um, or fatal moments, the tragedy of an accidental killer? Have you read that book? It's yes. It was written in the, yeah, the link, right? yeah, yeah, and it was yeah. the author of that. You know, she did a clinical study, and she said we shouldn't be. She felt we should be an accidental survivor mm. because, in some ways, there are. And my dad said there are many victims in these accidents. Many, many, many victims where it felt like it happened to us, and that sounds like a real jerkish thing to say but this is owning our truth because that's what it feels like and you don't know that this is real until suddenly you hear voices from not just female like I'm just some sensitive person but the male perspective and different age groups different cultures different countries and we're all saying these collective things and suddenly maybe someone will listen that I don't want to have a victim mentality. I don't want to say that. And I don't want to dishonor the person, the persons who have been lost, but it feels like that. It does feel like that. And with these cities of refuge, it feels like there would be, and where you didn't even have to really talk, you could talk about it if you want to, but you could also talk about other things. Uh, whereas in the real world, to be honest, once you, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you mm-hmm. talk about the accident, you're shunned. If you don't yeah. talk about the accident, people are like, well, they just moved on. How dare they smile? <laughs> I mean, we really get those kinds of things. How dare you smile? How dare you continue to laugh and go on with your life? And But if you don't do that, then you're also shunned because no one can handle the weight of it. It's really yeah. sad. It really is. Um that sense of, um, you know, dividing the world into victims and villains is never helpful, uh, really, as when you get into people's stories and think about their lives. And, and the other part of the cities of refuge that really stuck home, or kind of really caused me to notice, was um, the death of the high priest. There's a Talmudic tradition. It's not in the Old Testament, but the commentary on the Old Testament. It's very ancient Babylonian Talmud, so it's written during the Babylonian captivity like 400 years before Jesus or 500 years, they wrote that the high priest's wife, because the high priest for all men, the wife would make the clothes for people in the city of refuge. So I think like this connection with the high priest, and then when, when he dies, everyone's free, goes back to their house wherever they want to, and there's no penalty against them. So this idea of the high priest in, in, the, in that era of history is he's the one that goes into the Holy of Holies to offer blood on the mercy seat that's on the Ark of the Covenant once a year. It's where um, Zechariah is in the book of Luke when he goes into the temple to offer the sacrifice once a year to pour the blood of the mercy seat. And then the angel appears to him and says, you're going to have a child and you have to name him John. You can't talk. That's sort of how the Christmas story starts in the New Testament. But that's the moment where he goes in there and he could be killed any moment if he does something wrong or they had bells on his, the bottom of his robe so that if it stopped jingling, they could also have a, they had a rope attached to his ankle. They could pull him out under the curtain if he died. Like <laughs> so. maybe was he the, do you think maybe he's the high priest is like, not the offering, but the idea that everyone who enters the city of refuge, you know, we've, it's pardoned with that. Like we give our transgression and then 
what what do you think about that like what when you dissect it what did you think about why well, the reason why the avenger of blood that's what the guy's called that comes to kill you if you've accidentally killed somebody this is another someone's family member and this person had a name it was a title the avenger of blood because you owed a blood debt to that family you had taken one of their members unintentionally doesn't matter you, there's still one less person in their family who's now dead because of something that you did um, so the Avenger of Blood has to get that blood back. You've got to pay the blood debt. The only one who can pay it is you, the guy who did it. <laughs> so, so it's that eye for an eye still kind of, okay. This is, and so the Avenger of Blood and the guy commenting on the Facebook page, I wish, I wish they got in an accident, you know, or I wish they died in a car wreck like about us, you know, after one of these wrecks. That, that's the same impulse that, that somebody has to pay for this. There's a blood debt. Blood, life was taken. Life must be taken in exchange. So the sacrificial system is a subversion of blood debt. It's saying um, either symbolically or, or deeply spiritually, saying this lamb or this cow is going to take, is this, the blood of this lamb is going to atone or be in place of the blood that should be shed by this dude that did this. So the sacrificial system is covered, the blood is covering the sins of the people, um, okay. unintentional sins of the people. If you did stuff intentionally, there wasn't a sacrifice you could bring to the temple. David says that in Psalm 51, like if there was a sacrifice I could bring, I'd do it to get this off my scorecard. Right. Um, you can only really bring sacrifices for unintentional sins. And that's what the high priest is doing when he goes into the temple okay. on the day of atonement. I'm covering that for a time. So then as a Christian, I look at that and I say, here's, you know, in the, our theology of, of Jesus' crucifixion, he is the lamb of God. He is the sacrificial lamb whose blood covers the sins, both intentional and unintentional hmm. sins of the, of the world. Uh, and this is why Christians don't, you know, slaughter animals and sacrifice them because we believe Jesus was sacrificed right. once for all of us on the cross. So, but, and, and I'm like, well, did I sin on that day when I was 19? Is that a sin? Now, I was, I grew up in a church that um, taught sin was mostly, um, you know, hitting your sister, you know, not being thankful, uh, you know, kid sins, like being a, brat you know not lying listening to my parents. yeah i became a teenager sin was like having sex or holding hands with my girlfriend or um yeah even like kissing or looking at pornography you know the sin became very sexualized individualized like i could commit sin and this would be sin but nobody ever told me that like another category of sin is like stuff that we all do together like sins that are communal sins or even the participation in other people's sin, um, maybe even unknowingly, you know, for Americans during before the Civil War who kept voting for people that propped up slavery or kept, um, you know, being like, well, you know, I, I wouldn't own slaves, but, you know, it's kind of okay that they do. And I'm not going to really do anything or an escaped slave shows up at your door and you, you call the police and say, go take him back to the, you know, these are like communal sins that people didn't always think of as sins then because like everybody was kind of in on it. And I think of like 
you know, how we deal with environmental concerns that are going to affect our grandkids and stuff. Like, you know, those are like communal sins that they're not like individualized, but they're just our own lack of concern for other people. And that is a kind of sin too. And the other kind of sin they never told me about was just participating in something that's part of the evil in the world has a way of like sticking to us in a moral way. And that's why we call it moral injury because our sense of morals is injured. Like even though, and the term came from soldiers that served in war, like you're in a war, you're in the army and you end up accidentally killing somebody that shouldn't have been killed. Maybe a, a, a woman or a child or, or even an enemy combatant can cause moral injury and say like, I killed somebody. I mean, I did my job. I was doing my job. Like I probably could have done a little better, but it was sort of morally right in an outer sense. So we wouldn't call that sin, but in a deeper inner personal way. And systemically we say, man, when you participate in a war, the war is a way of participating in you or in me. So in that, that's the kind of sin that I experienced in that accidental death on that when I was 19. It wasn't intentional, it wasn't a personal thing, but I was like caught up in this larger evil in the world, which is the, that death exists, that, that accidents happen, that we have said like we wanna drive 90 miles an hour at any time of day or night in any weather conditions. The systemic evil that is like in sort of everything, that's what I was plunged into on that day. And that's why I never, like I went to a Baptist church. I was on my way to a Baptist church actually the night that it happened and our afternoon it happened. And um, they would have altar calls every Sunday. Um, and I would go up and I would confess like my sins as a 19, 20 year old, you know, of like as a Bible college student and, you know, the stuff I was mad about or whatever and try to give my life to God in a deeper way so I could be closer to God. Um, but I never ever like confessed that at the altar. I never said, I killed somebody accidentally and I feel terrible about it. I don't know what to do, God, but can you take this? for me? Does the, does the death of your son, Jesus Christ, take this away from me, cover this up too, and take it away? And I think the answer was yes, I should have done that. And I could have done that, but nobody told me that Jesus' death had anything to do with that accident when I was 19. And this is what I'm trying to say today is like, that whatever theology you have of, of Jesus' death and resurrection, apply it to the accident that happened in your life. Or even if you're another religion, and I'm not an expert in any other religion but Christianity, like take the stuff that deals with sin and like brokenness that in your faith and apply it to that accident. And I think, you know, you'll find that, that, that that'll meet that deeper need of blood debt that, you know, just dealing with PTSD doesn't take away. I mean, we need treatment for PTSD after these things, but it doesn't deal with that. Right. It's something deeper. I think, and I guess that's why we all universally have that feeling. Well, I know a lot of us do. I guess I shouldn't speak for everyone, but everyone I've ever met, that we maybe we don't deserve to live too. Or, you know, maybe we're not worthy of these things. So that is the almost, I don't want to say, um, like we were designed that way. And God knew that. 
why he did have a blood debt because he knew that in our character and in our heart, our spirit, we would feel that there would need to be some kind of atonement. And I struggled with that too. I would say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me to David and to God. And, but then I would be like, I don't know what I'm asking for forgiveness for. Like I did everything that I thought I was supposed to do that day. So it was weird. I, I don't know what to even ask for forgiveness for. And then, you know, if I speak that to someone else, you feel again, like a big old a-hole. <laughs> um, yeah. I didn't intend for it. I don't know if I made like a very specific mistake. I think you can then have a little bit more verbiage. But I heard it said just a couple days ago that that would be more of like a transgression. Hmm that the definition of a transgression in from who was speaking, it was uh, Rick Warren giving a sermon mm. and, and I like him. He, yeah. His message is always timely. I listen to his podcast when I go for a walk and uh, mm. it was, it was, he was talking about the difference between a trespass and a transgression and when you intent versus not intentional. And it really resonated with me that maybe that's why. That, oh, uh, that issue of intention in the Hebrew um, for the stories of the uh, cities of refuge, there's no difference in Hebrew between accidental kill and and killing somebody. Um, in 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 a lot of English translations, they will translate one as manslaughter. Somebody accidentally kills somebody. I think the NRSV does accidentally killed somebody. Some other translations say manslaughter. Others say you know, but in the Hebrew, it's like if somebody kills somebody, like it doesn't um, linguistically make a difference where we make a big difference between murder and like accidentally kill somebody. But, you know, obviously to the victim, the victim's still dead. And I use that victim very loosely. Last summer, was last summer, to Canterbury Cathedral in, in uh, Kent, England. It's like right in the tip, like near France, sort of. It's a, like a, way down the coast. And it's the first place that Anglicans, Christians from Rome, first landed in England to evangelize it and convert the pagans uh, to Christianity. And so the Canterbury Cathedral is like this, the mothership of Anglicans around the world. And I'm an Anglican. And we still do confession. Like we have a, a, we don't require people to do it, to come to church or anything. It's, it's like optional, but it's there in the prayer book. Um, it's been there for a couple hundred years to say like, Sometimes there's stuff that you just have to like bring to God through a priest or through another minister, another Christian, and hear that forgiveness from God, like directly about something specific. So I I said, I want to do a confession because they said, you want to do a confession, you can make an appointment with one of the chaplains on duty because it's a real church. Like still, it's a tourist thing too. It's like all the kings are buried there and stuff. But like, you know, it's a pilgrimage spot where people would go and make confessions all the way down through the medieval period and even beyond to now. So I made this appointment and the guy said like, oh, not now, we're real busy. Uh, <laughs> come back at two. I was like, I'm like dying, I'm crying and stuff. I'm thinking about the things I'm gonna confess, which had been a while since I'd done it. And one of the things I was gonna confess was this, my accident when I was 19. I'd never done that. I'd never gone to an altar call about it. I'd never gone to a priest and now and you were ready i was ready i was like i'm gonna do it. i had two other things too one related to parenting and the other was the iraq war that i was part of and i wanted to confess that to god kind of very specifically um 
And the second was like, my kids were turning into teenagers and not interested in hanging out with me anymore. And I was feeling a lot of grief, like I should have been a better parent early on. And moral injuries from parenting is another huge category of moral injury that every parent I've ever met <laughs> has like dozens. So I went and this really ancient priest who like could barely walk, old guy, he didn't use the prayer book or anything, he had it all memorized. And I, I said, the two other things, and then I said, you know, when I was 19, I was driving to church and I hit somebody with my car and they died. And I've carried that my whole life and I want to confess that. And then there's a little time after where they kind of give you some counsel. And he said, yeah, I understand the other two, the parenting and the, the Iraq thing. But I don't But he goes, I don't think you need to confess that car accident. Wow. Okay. And I was like, this like English accent, old guy, you know. And I was like, no, you don't get what I'm saying. Like, like he should have just said, oh, you just want to, yeah. <laughs> like, like told me that God forgave me. But and he did, he did. He said, God forgives you for all these things. But he was like, he kind of stopped there and was like, I don't think that's like one of the things that counts as a sin that you need to confess. And I'm like, I feel like I want to get rid of this. And I don't know if it's a sin or not. Like, some other things in my life have been very clearly sins. But I do know that I think about it, I have regret, I have shame, I feel like a failure. I feel sometimes like I'm not a, like a good, safe person because I've done this. Like I have these feelings that come and go for 26 years and they're more now than they used to be. So I'm doing this. Let me confess and this. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't argue with him because I, was like trying to be cool and he knew I was a priest too. So I was trying to be like, Oh, I'm um, cool, cool about this, you know, <laughs> but I, I was kind of like taken aback. And I thought like, we need to get the word out that this is a subject that people feel whether, whether it is or not, they feel like sinners and they need forgiveness and they need to hear it again and again and again, sometimes because they don't always feel it right away. And they need to, take that build that city of refuge part of the book is like you know how to express artistically what happened to you through a song or poetry or through like you've done um through an art project that sort of captures that like these are ways people heal from these kinds of moral injuries and they need to bring it to god and however you bring stuff to god whether it's out in the woods by yourself loudly or with a priest in a church or with a, at an altar call or whatever it is, you got to bring that stuff to God because ultimately God is the only one who can really handle it. Like, cause you can say, Hey God, you, you're the one that made this world. I know the devil's out there and stuff too, but like, you, you know, I don't know where else to take this. So I hope that in 20 years, when a guy like me goes to Canterbury cathedral and says, I accidentally killed somebody when I was 19, the priest who's on duty there is like, you got it. I get it. <laughs> you know, It doesn't sort of like push back and say, oh, that's not something you should confess. Or Yeah. And You're he didn't forgiven. say it that bluntly. Yeah. He's, he's an English person. So he said it some like roundabout way that was very nice. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> I kind of felt stupid. <laughs> no, I think that's normal because people want to make you feel better. You don't know how to express what you can't stop thinking about it's just like 
your closest members, I remember saying, you know, my mom, God bless her, anyone, it was just an accident. It was just an accident. That's why we have the term accident. As much as they had great intention, it didn't describe what it felt like inside. And, and you're explaining that and that you're right. We have to get more awareness and have more clinical research to back this up, but, but it's so powerful because moral injury is just your soul that it takes time. It takes work. It takes confessing. I really saw a turn in my healing process when I confessed it to another person. I guess, is this a ministry? I mean, Uh, sort of, sort of (laughs) people who pastor like yourself and, and how people that are pastors, they will bring up other things in there as a, you know, a sermon illustration. But this, this type of thing is very rare. It's very difficult to talk about because it is so personal. And there's a whole layer of that when the person who passed was a family member, you know, I mean, that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother layer of topic, you know, if their accident was um, a family member. Maybe that's why we're having these conversations because of COVID, because of um, different things. Absolutely. Uh, When I went viral on TikTok for a silly video I did about a year ago in the summer, um, a bunch of people found me on Twitter that saw me on TikTok. and, And I remember a Twitter post that no one actually this was a very small account and I took a picture of it because I wanted to save it but it said remember when the when the TikTok priest killed someone that was the that was what the that was what the the story and because I'd written about that I've been very open about what happened to me and what I did and but like it really like took me back like they were trying to make a little a sting they were trying to is that what that's called I mean a little jab it must have felt like weird for them to see he looks so happy in these videos dancing around and stuff and um and he killed somebody in a car accident like years ago it was 26 years ago you know but like the idea that somebody would even like be able to like joke around or have a normal life like for them it just like and who knows what their experiences were with these kind of things but i was always like oh people are always going to connect that with me and I'm going to have to be okay with that. Whereas, you know, I could have probably never talked about it. And unless you'd read my first book, you probably wouldn't know what happened because it was before the internet. Um, that's a whole other subject. But that's always kind of stuck with me. So when the first um, soldier killed someone in my unit, I was shot an enemy who had shot at him uh, from a guard post. He came to see me because they said he was not doing real well. It was like the afternoon where it happened in the morning. And um, he said, like, I crossed the line. I feel really weird. And my first impulse was, you were just doing your job. Stop feeling bad. You know, I'm proud of you. I wish I had done something heroic like that. You know, it was a great shot. And it was a war. You know, they shot at you. <laughs> if there ever was, like, an okay shooting at somebody in Iraq, it was that one. But this guy felt terrible. and. Some, but something like shut me up. It was probably the Holy Spirit. Just like, don't say anything. Don't take it away from him. Don't, you know, be with him in the pit. He's in the pit. Go down into the pit with him. Sit in the pit. Don't try to drag him out of the pit with some platitude. And I think if we can just get that across to people, 
that when someone shares a story of like that's morally ambiguous that they feel bad about. I mean, an accidental um, death is somewhere between an insurance claim and a murder. Like there's no, like it's in this weird area. So good. No, that's so good to sit and just be present. And that's an uncomfortable place, but that truly is the nicest and kindest thing you can do to for someone is to just sit with them. It is, it is loving them. And Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. And you know, I want to say to that person who did that, tweet um <laughs> have a this few things teenager, so. yeah i have a few things that i'd like to say but i also i mean i can give them grace i can give them grace we don't know their story and and that's how and i can have compassion towards that but guys let's if we if we step back from the really close view and we look at the wider angle if we believe that if you truly believe that and if you thought okay well if i've ever made a mistake i don't deserve to to feel good again or to laugh again or to feel loved again to enjoy the sunshine again all those things how many none of us <laughs> all of us would be in that same boat in some some degree you know because none of us live a perfect life at some point we have all been the person who have, who has hurt someone and all of us will experience um hurt and um you know so if you're walking this right now and you're listening David and I are telling you you are allowed to have joy and fullness and laughter and sometimes that is the best way you can honor someone who's lost by making other people laugh by enjoying God's creation because you're spreading light versus staying in the darkness. And that's the only way to honor who's lost in my opinion. Yeah. And then we'll cry again and then we'll laugh again and we'll cry again. I mean, all the funerals I've ever been to, there was laughter and crying, you know, these are human emotions that we need to express. Right. And you know, that's interesting. Uh, I always felt like, um, I guess at first you, you felt like you feel like they're mutually exclusive. You know, mm-hmm. you can't have grief and joy at the same time. And I think that that's part of the psychological part of this is understanding that they're not mutually exclusive. You can have both. You can have aspects of both at the same time because I took a lot of pictures um, or people would take pictures um, especially that first three months uh, after the accident to the outside world I looked like still the normal I I did I I, but then I felt guilty that I could look at myself and that my insides didn't match my outside and then over time I can look at a picture of me now and see, in the last three years and eight months, I have aged mm. rapidly, rapidly. Mm-hmm. My body, it eventually took a toll on my body. And I'm trying to reverse that now. Um, <laughs> trying really hard. I remember like just the first three to six months, it hadn't caught up to me physically on the outside yet. you know. But those pictures certainly didn't match how I felt on the inside. The weight of it now is I can see how much I have changed in just three years. Absolutely. And, but the moral injury, there is healing from it. Is there any last message of hope that you want to leave with us? 
that you're not alone in this um, experience or the person that you love, that you care about, that you're listening for, they're not alone either. They have you and we have each other. So one of the, I mean, I, if someone reaches out to me that's had an accidental um, impact in their life, um, I will drop everything to talk to them. And I know that every other person that's in our community of caregivers and caring people will do that same thing too, because this is one of those issues that like we know there's really nobody to talk to about these things. Um, so that's one thing of hope that you are not alone in this. So to reach out, tell somebody about your, what's happened to you. And um, I look forward to hearing from you and if you'd like to do that. Thank you so much for coming on again. It was a pleasure to talk with you again. I'm, I feel like I have a friend in Pflugerville and always. It's, it's, always, it's always good. I'm glad that we have this little community. So take care, David, and um, stay safe and healthy. You too. All right. Blessings. Bye-bye. Blessings. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Accidental Hope. Remember to seek hope and share it. Come back next week. Bye.